On the morning of July 8, 1905, Walter Smith and his oldest son, Tom, decided to take a trip onto the water. Before they left, Walter's wife, Rebecca, made breakfast. As the bacon sizzled in the greasy pan, she was pensive. She was still rattled from a few days before when a stream of bullets had ripped through their house. Fortunately, no one was injured, but the event was the final straw for Walter. There'd been a growing animosity between him and Guy Bradley, and naturally, he assumed Guy was involved in the shooting. After breakfast, Rebecca saw Walter and Tom set sail for Oyster Keys in Florida Bay, their favorite hunting ground. Then she returned to the house and started on her daily chores. The first thing she did was tune her piano. She and Guy's wife, Frony, shared a love for music and would often play when the families came together. But as she was tuning the piano, she heard gunshots not far into the distance. She went out to see what had happened. She didn't detect anything except a flock of birds flying into the sky as silence once again settled in. But before she went back inside, she heard more gunshots. Something was wrong. In the distance, she saw a blue sailboat fast approaching. It was Walter and Tom in a frantic state. It appeared her intuition was right. When he reached the shore, Walter shouted at her, We've got to load up and get out of here. I'm going to Key West to give myself up. I've killed Guy Bradley. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on Guy Bradley, America's first environmental martyr. He was shot by his one-time friend and hunting partner, Walter Smith, on July 8, 1905. Last week, we examined Guy Bradley's life as a game warden, protecting wildlife in Florida's Everglades from dangerous hunters like Walter Smith. This week, we'll dive into the trial and aftermath of Guy's murder. Also, we'll try to understand how the tragedy led to a nationwide discussion about conservation. On the morning of July 8, 1905, Guy Bradley set sail for Oyster Keys after he heard gunshots reverberate across the shore from his waterfront home. Soon, he discovered Walter Smith and his 18-year-old son Tom breaking the law once again, hunting birds in their nests. Guy told Walter he was going to arrest Tom, but Walter refused to back down. Instead, he shot Guy in the chest. That night, 
Guy's wife, Froni, stayed up waiting for him. She was used to her husband staying out late combing his jurisdiction or on his frequent trips to Key West, but this was different. He should have been home by now. After all, she saw him set sail for Oyster Keys that morning, which was only two miles from shore. She felt something was not right. Late into the night, she fed the children and sent them off to bed, but Froney couldn't sleep. As she tossed and turned, fear consumed her. She had seen Walter Smith's boat out on the water. She knew Smith and Guy's relationship had deteriorated, and if something had happened to Guy, it must have involved the errant hunter. Frony woke up early the next morning to the sound of heavy rain. Guy still wasn't home. Distraught, she called upon Guy's deputy, Jean Roberts, to help track him down. Jean knew the Oyster Keys well. It didn't take him long to find Guy's boat drifting near East Cape Sable. The tiny rowboat was covered in blood. Guy's bullet-riddled body rested on the floor, his revolver beside him. Jean sailed back to the shore, preparing himself to be the bearer of bad news. But back in town, Walter Smith had beat him to it. Smith arrived at the Key West police station, walked through the door, and declared, I've shot Guy Bradley. Even though Smith had already told the family that Guy was dead, he told Sheriff Frank Knight, I don't know whether he's dead or just badly injured. Sheriff Knight immediately threw Smith into a cell. Smith's declaration left the sheriff perplexed as to whether to charge him with murder or not, so he headed down to Flamingo to figure out what had happened. When he arrived, he immediately went to the coroner's office and discovered that Guy was, in fact, dead. Sheriff Knight sent word to authorities in Key West that they had a murder investigation on their hands. Judge Beverly Walton set bail at $5,000, worth about $146,000 today, no small amount. She also held Smith's two sons as material witnesses. On the surface, it appeared to be an open and shut case. Walter Smith confessed to shooting Guy, and others were willing to testify that Smith had threatened Guy before. However, many in Key West underestimated Smith's cunning intellect. Sitting in his dark jail cell, Walter Smith wrote a letter to local prosecutor and Senator W. Hunt Harris. At first, Harris denounced the murderer out of hand, but Smith requested a visit with the prosecutor. Harris was curious, so he acquiesced. During his visit, Smith asked Harris if he would defend him, naming whatever price suited him. Harris was astounded. He told Smith, Bradley was a personal friend of mine. The prosecution would suit me better. He knew of Smith's reputation as a cantankerous old man, but he hoped the matter would end there. Unfortunately for him, Smith was emphatic about telling his side of the story. Harris warned Smith explicitly that anything he said to him could perhaps be used in a court of law. Smith glared at Harris through the jail bars and continued his story, articulating the events that transpired on July 8th. In his view, he was the victim in the case. 
Smith explained that Guy had been hostile toward him, making threats and demanding that he turn over his son, Tom. He contended that Guy had even cursed at him and fired his pistol first in his direction. Smith claimed he fired a return shot as soon as the smoke cleared from Guy's gun. Guy collapsed in his boat, but regained his composure. He even tried to return fire, but eventually he fell back into the boat. Smith's version of the killing was later corroborated by his son, Tom. But as Harris listened to the account, he noticed the myriad of inconsistencies in Smith's story. For instance, Smith claimed that Guy had stood up from his boat after he was shot. Then, when it was proven that Guy couldn't have possibly stood up after the fatal wound, Smith went back and changed his story. His account of the facts was looking dubious at best. Harris was fully aware of the circumstances that were before him. Smith claimed he had shot Guy in self-defense, so he still had a case to be made. But the fact remained that he had killed an officer of the law, and there were several discrepancies in his story. Nevertheless, Harris could be persuaded at the right price. By all accounts, Hunt Harris was an urbane man with a formidable presence who seeked to correct the wrongs of society. He believed in justice and he believed in the law, but above all, he believed in profit. The state prosecutor changed his mind and decided to defend Smith at his trial. Smith's years among Key West's political circles were finally paying off. But at the first preliminary hearing, Harris realized this was going to be more difficult than he imagined. At the hearing, Harris listened to the mounting evidence against his client. Then he presented his notes from Smith's side of the story. As expected, the judge noticed the discrepancies. First, the judge pointed out that, according to the medical examination, a bullet had entered the right side of Guy's chest near the shoulder and destroyed four inches of his backbone. What the judge found odd was that Guy was left-handed. If he had drawn his gun with his left hand to shoot at Smith, his body would have been angled in the opposite direction. He would have been shot through the left side, not the right. But Harris defended Smith with intense conviction. People were astonished that one of the most powerful figures in Monroe County was suddenly a defense attorney for the man who killed a law enforcement officer. If he was going to succeed with his reputation intact, he had to prove Smith had shot Guy in self-defense. Harris's argument painted Walter Smith as a victim of Guy Bradley's overzealous approach toward his job. And apparently, it was convincing enough for the grand jury. The judge concluded another hearing was needed before going to trial. A few days after the court hearing, news of the tragedy slowly came out of Key West. Edwin Bradley, Guy's father, received the news six days after the shooting. His co-worker, Reverend E.V. Blackman, passed on his condolences after reading about it in the Miami metropolis. Back in Flamingo, residents wanted justice served. As they waited for the court to unleash their punishment, some decided they'd waited long enough. Brothers Shelley and Alman Vickers, friends of Guy Bradley, traveled from Key West to Flamingo in the dead of night and set fire to Walter Smith's house. 
The Vickers brothers tiptoed around and noticed Smith had already abandoned the property, but the family still had belongings there, including the piano Frony and Rebecca had played on together. Many locals cheered on the Vickers brothers and even assisted them in terrorizing the Smiths. After the fire, Steve Roberts took Smith's most prized possession, his horse. Members of the Roberts gang assisted Frony in burying Guy. Even the notorious hunters who had once terrorized the game warden were paying their respects now that he was dead. They decided to lay Guy to rest at the place where his body was found, East Cape Sable, the southernmost point in the United States. They dug the grave and lowered his coffin to the ground next to a young boy who had died a year earlier from a water moccasin bite. It was a modest grave for an extraordinary man who gave his life protecting the law. Meanwhile, two miles away, Guy's killer, Walter Smith, was sitting in his jail cell, contemplating the end of his own days. We'll explore the second hearing of Walter Smith right after this. Now, back to the story. Walter Smith had confessed to shooting Guy Bradley, though he claimed it was self-defense. In an ironic twist, Smith was now the one fighting for his life in court. Smith's second hearing had been scheduled for November 1905, but it was soon postponed. During the long wait behind bars, his health began to decline. His body was frail from lack of nourishment, and the keen eyesight he had relied on as a sharpshooter and hunter was fading. As Smith sat alone in his grimy cell, his only thought was, will they hang me? He had told his side of the story. Now it was up to the prosecution. Since state prosecutor Hunt Harris had decided to defend Smith, there was no one for the prosecution. Morris K. Jessup, president of the New York Audubon Society, was on the ground in Key West during the proceedings, and he had to inform the society's national chairman, William Dutcher, that Harris had turned. In a letter to Dutcher, he warned, justice may be defeated if the case is left to the county officials, and it is imperative that this society shall employ the best legal talent so that Walter Smith shall receive his just desserts. Dutcher recruited Colonel James T. Sanders of Miami for the prosecution, a well-known attorney in the region. But Dutcher, a man from New York City, had no understanding of the nuances of Key West's political structure. And apparently neither did Sanders. He was no match for Hunt Harris, who knew the grand jury would be comprised of hunters and fishermen folks who scoffed at Florida's hunting laws and who would sympathize with Walter Smith. A second hearing began on December 8, 1905, to see if the case should go to trial. Harris stood from his chair, looked around the courtroom, and walked straight toward the grand jury. In his baritone voice, he laid out the claim that Walter Smith killed Guy Bradley in self-defense. Appealing to the jury's sensibilities, he presented Guy merely as a game warden and completely disregarded his duties as law officer of Monroe County. Harris also pontificated on Smith's Civil War past and painted him as a family man with good values. 
Walter Smith sat solemnly in the courtroom as Harris weaved a narrative of intricate details about his upstanding character. Before he finished, Harris asserted that Guy was the one who fired his gun first, which blew a hole through Smith's boat. In contrast, Sanders' handling of the case was poorly executed. He rarely questioned Smith's inconsistent statements, such as Guy shooting first. He didn't ask if the hole in Smith's boat was even caused by a bullet. Nor did he call Gene Roberts as a witness, who had found Guy's body with a gun clinched in his hand, all the bullets still in the chamber. The only witness he called was Uncle Steve Roberts, Smith's bitter enemy, to poke holes in Smith's reputation. Unfortunately, many thought Roberts seemed erratic on the witness stand due to his offbeat demeanor. The grand jury left the courtroom ruminating on Harris's emotional testimony. When they returned, they concluded that Guy Bradley's killer, Walter Smith, could walk away a free man. Guy's wife, Froney, fell into grief, but she knew she couldn't weep for long. She was now a widow with two sons to support. In a letter to Audubon chairman William Dutcher, Froney wrote, I am at my mother's in Key West, sewing, quilting, and make two or three dollars a week. Citizens in Flamingo were left baffled by the miscarriage of justice, but there was little they could do. Members of Florida's Audubon Society were also left disheartened. After Guy's death, the organization was unable to find a new warden to take over Flamingo. Few men were willing to put their lives on the line to protect wildlife. And without a warden to enforce the hunting laws, the area's bird population began to decrease by the hundreds. The news of Walter Smith walking free was devastating to the National Association of Audubon Societies. President William Dutcher felt a sense of obligation to Guy Bradley's family and started a fund in his name to support Frony and her two sons. Dutcher's aide was able to help Frony buy a house in Key West. But he soon realized that Guy Bradley's death was not an isolated incident. In the wake of his murder, game wardens in other areas, from Florida to South Carolina, were being killed as well. One in particular, Columbus McLeod of Arcadia, Florida, vanished during a patrol of Charlotte Harbor. His sunken Audubon patrol boat was found weighed down by sacks of sand. In the boat, police found blood and hair, along with the warden's hat, and two long gashes cut into it from an axe. His body was never found. After all these gruesome incidents, the Audubon Society didn't want their sacrifices to be in vain. Society members like Laura Mars felt deeply about Guy's murder and Smith's ability to walk free. In an article in the Audubon magazine Bird Lore, Mars wrote, the murder of Warden Guy Bradley fills not only our society in Florida, but the people of the United States with horror. And for what? A feather to adorn the head of some woman? Audubon Society membership increased after Guy Bradley's death, mostly from women. Much like the hunters who felt remorse over their killings, women who had purchased feathered hats suddenly felt remorse too. 
they promoted their cause in other clubs for women, such as the influential General Federation of Women's Clubs. Founded in 1890 by Jane Cunningham Crowley, the GFWC generated platforms on issues ranging from women's rights to factory conditions for women. Members from the GFWC encouraged women on the margins of activism that the Audubon Society was a good place to start. It was a place where women's voices could be heard. And conservation gelled perfectly with the progressive movement's larger focus on industrial reform. Audubon societies across the country had initially focused on ending hunting, dedicating research and resources to the areas where birds were vanishing. However, they soon realized that in order to win, their fight had to be not with the hunters themselves, but with the factory owners making these hats. After years of intense protests, in 1910, the Audubon Society convinced lawmakers in New York to ban the importation of plume feathers. Naturally, the factory owners and the Feather Importers Association of New York contested the bill, but they were unsuccessful. This change signaled the beginning of the end for plume hats. What the bill also achieved was the ability for women, who were not allowed to vote at the time, to enter the political arena. Men thought the concept of conservation wasn't masculine, so they let women lead the fight. But ironically, it was women's rights activists who clashed with the conservationists the most. With the plume factories closing, many claimed that 20,000 workers would be put out of work, most of them being women. Champions for better working conditions for women saw this as egregious. They believed that the conservationists were derailing the progressive movement's overarching objective. But the momentum started by Guy Bradley's death wasn't going to stop. Following New York's state laws, new legislation from the federal government further tightened the restriction on plume hunting. Along with the new laws, social trends hurt the plume industry as well, Women called flappers began to wear their hair short and feathered hats all but disappeared. And down in Florida, former hunters like Walter Smith struggled to carve out a living. After the trial, Smith and his family left Flamingo and never returned. Smith lived the remaining years of his life poor and remorseful over what had occurred on that July morning. He and his wife, Rebecca, moved frequently across South Florida, looking for work with his only possession, his boat, Cleveland. Many believe that Smith's nomadic existence after the killing was also because many locals knew him as the man who killed Guy Bradley. In 1907, Smith sued two magazine publishers for describing him as a murderer. The case dragged on for three years, Finally, a judge awarded Smith $750 plus court costs of $208.50, which is the equivalent of almost $20,000 today, a far cry from the $50,000 Smith had asked for. He later contended that the lawyers took all of it anyway, but at least I proved my point. When Walter Smith died on January 5th, 1935, at the age of 92, he died with only his name. Many had forgotten his connection to Guy Bradley. Smith's obituary in the Fort Lauderdale News merely mentioned he was the only Confederate veteran in Broward County. For a moment, 
It looked as if Guy Bradley would be forgotten in the same way. In 1960, Hurricane Donna ripped through the Florida Keys, destroying Guy's grave. But a plaque was later placed at the site where the grave had once stood. It read, Audubon Warden was shot and killed off this shore by outlaw feather hunters on July 8, 1905. Even decades later, he was remembered as a martyr. Coming up, we'll dive deeper into why Guy Bradley's death made an impact on conservation. Now, back to the story. Years after Guy Bradley's death, problems between hunters and game wardens in South Florida still lingered. In 1951, a similar occurrence happened in Key West. Two men were convicted of killing white ibis birds and also charged with assaulting the warden who arrested them. But unlike Walter Smith, the two suspects were fined and sentenced to six months in jail. The prosecutor, coincidentally, was Alan B. Clear, whose father had once sold groceries to Guy and Frony Bradley. It appeared Guy's legacy wasn't forgotten by everyone. Stuart McIver, author of the book Death in the Everglades, The Death of Guy Bradley, said that Guy probably did more for the cause by giving up his life than if he continued being a warden for 15 to 20 years. By his death, you had a revulsion against hunting. But if Guy hadn't been killed, hunters would have continued to pillage nesting areas without any regard for the law. He would have carried on with his duties, patrolling his jurisdiction, but most likely, not much else would have transpired. Many species of birds carried a price tag, and the reward was far greater than the minor penalties for breaking the law. Arrests would have been made, but not enough to make a significant difference. But through death, Guy became a nationwide symbol for the importance of conservation. He sacrificed his life for the environmental issues that sadly still plague the Everglades today. But progress has been made, and the Audubon Society couldn't possibly have made the strides that it did if Guy hadn't put his life on the line. After his death, their crusade to protect birds from plume hunters became a nationwide debate. Without that inciting incident, it might have taken years for people across the country to recognize the destruction being caused to the environment. During Guy Bradley's time, wildlife devastation was an all-too-common occurrence. One bird that symbolized the necessity of conservation at that time was the passenger pigeon. Due to their rapid decline in population, these birds were a source of concern for the Audubon Society. But despite their efforts, by 1914, the passenger pigeon was extinct. In 1929, the Migratory Bird Conservation Act was passed in order to designate certain areas as a place of refuge for birds. This was a pivotal step to ensure wildlife was secure. And along with this progress, the conservation movement was igniting other social debates as well. In a time of rampant industrialization, with the advent of modern technology like the automobile, the conservation movement transformed our collective ideas 
about our connection with nature. With the mid-20th century arriving and America in the midst of its post-war boom, cities were rapidly expanding. Protecting wildlife in their habitats became paramount when more people were moving away from dense urban environs and into rural spaces and suburbs. Many Americans saw these undeveloped lands as untapped resources to mine for urban expansion. The wildlife who already lived there paid the price. Many within the conservation movement look back to the 19th century writers like Aldo Leopold and Henry David Thoreau as guiding voices to recontextualize their mission. These writers understood the value of preserving natural resources and provided a blueprint for conservation leaders to educate the public. The result was the Wilderness Act of 1964, which gave protection to 9.1 million acres of land as wildlife refuges. In 1973, the Nixon administration implemented the Endangered Species Act after they decided the Endangered Preservation Act of 1966 wasn't adequate enough. The act undoubtedly had its origins in the progressive movement and in the death of Guy Bradley. Much like the plume laws in Guy's day, it prevents anyone from hunting and making a profit from any species that are protected under federal law. Today, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Fisheries Service have become the target of litigation because of their period species reviews, which determine the species that require intense protection. Oil and gas corporations have recently petitioned most of these reviews, hoping to loosen regulations so they can drill on protected lands. This drilling threatens many species, including ones Guy Bradley had seen on his patrol, like the Cape Sable Sparrow and the Florida Manatee. One of the biggest challenges the environmental services face is determining which species are considered at risk. There are a few different risk factors they consider the destruction of the species' habitat, disease, the existing regulations, and other natural or man-made factors. These factors determine whether a species is either classified as endangered, in present danger of extinction, or merely threatened, likely to become endangered in the future. Regulations affect the two categories differently. If a mistake is made, this simple determination could be the difference between life or death for at-risk species. In the Everglades, these two categories are particularly challenging for conservationists and scientists grappling with an ever-changing environment. Habitat destruction from roads and housing developments is the number one threat to wildlife. However, Another menace that has scientists alarmed is the threat of invasive species. One example is the Argentine tegu, a reptile that eats small mammals and eggs from birds and turtles. This reptile has caused a few species of bird populations to dwindle. Scientists don't know if these invasive species are temporary threats or not igniting contentious debates about whether to classify the affected plants and animals as endangered or threatened. Despite these challenges, the bird population in South Florida has managed to endure. In 2017, the Audubon Society reported that 46,000 nests from seven different species of birds now reside where Guy Bradley was killed, far less than when Guy Bradley was alive. 
However, the next year, the Everglades National Park recorded the highest population of white ibis birds in 70 years. But since the Audubon Society's 2017 report, changes to the ESA have transpired. In July 2018, the Interior Department made drastic alterations to the law, making it easier for pipelines and other construction projects to be built on protected lands. Deputy Secretary of the Interior David Bernhardt believed that the changes would help streamline proposals and improve regulatory practices, but environmentalists believe the revisions would benefit gas and oil companies at the cost of the environment. With regulations weakening, nonprofit organizations are more imperative than ever to protect wildlife. New threats Guy Bradley couldn't foresee, like global warming, are adding urgency to the debate. With rising sea levels in South Florida, wildlife habitats are being destroyed. But deep in the Everglades, the man who sparked the movement is still remembered. There's a trail named in honor of Guy Bradley stretching through the wilderness near Flamingo. When visitors look out onto the water, they have a chance to reflect on what can be lost if nature isn't protected. Perhaps most importantly, it reminds them that the fight for the environment pushes on to assure Guy's legacy endures. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode of Assassinations was written by Rini Thomas Rodriguez and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.